This is MSF Torah. It's not just a podcast. It's an in-depth analysis of the fundamentals of Torah. Presenting the truth as seen through the eyes of the Torah. Don't forget to follow the podcast, visit our website at msoftorah.com and join Patreon for exclusive content. Now that we've established already the truth of the divinity of the Torah, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu really gave a Torah to Kla Yisrael at Har Sinai, we now have to turn our attention to something else, and that's the preservation of the Torah. Even if Hashem gave us the Torah on Har Sinai, and Hashem gave us His method of perfection, He gave it to mankind how mankind is able to perfect themselves and enjoy the ultimate pleasures that He has in store for us. So He did give it one time at Har Sinai, it's true, but how do we know that what we have today is still is his plans, is that same method of perfection? Now, this could take two different shapes. Number one, Akrash Rafu could have, in theory, changed his mind and give us a different method of perfection. Now, the truth is, the more we spoke about and understand all the details of how Hashem, what Hashem is, what Hashem isn't, and how Hashem, and what mitzvahs are, it's kind of hard to hear that. But let's even have our minds open for a little bit. Maybe Hashem gave us different instructions. As it were, He changed His mind and He gave a new Torah, which is exactly what the other religions believe. So maybe Hashem gave a new method of perfection to somebody else. And so now the Torah we have is not relevant anymore. That's one possible. So how do we know that Hashem never changed His mind and gave a new Torah? Number two, how can we be sure that we're understanding the Torah correctly. Even if Hashem never changed his mind, in other words, he came to Har Sinai, he gave us the Torah, he never changed his mind, this is it. But how do we know we're fulfilling its instructions properly? There are many who claim, even in the name of Judaism, and even they claim that they're understanding the, the Torah better than, let's say, us. When us, I would, I would mean Orthodox Judaism, without getting into the details of the differences within Orthodox Judaism. But in general, Orthodox Judaism who believes that there's a term Har Sinai, and we understand there's a Torah Shabbat Peh, and as understood by the great Rabbanim over the centuries, that's the Torah that we have now, which we'll get into all these details. But how do we know that we're understanding the Torah correctly? How do we know that everything that we have is the correct interpretation of the Torah? Maybe, chas we're not keeping the Torah properly at all. So how do we know that we're right in our understanding of Hashem's instructions? So we have to deal with these things one at a time. Let's start with the first point. Did Hashem ever take back the Torah? Did He ever remove the Torah, say it's not it's not uh, not applicable anymore, and give mankind a new one? In two places in the Torah, it says, "Do not add and do not take away any of these mitzvahs." Lo soy seif alav, lo sigrami menu says it two places in Sefer Dvarim. Hashem is explicitly saying to us, "Do not add and do not take away any of the mitzvahs." Moreover, we have a parsha. Right next to that pasuk, we have a parsha that tells us that if a navi sheker comes along, a, a person claims as a navi, and he does miracles, and he tells us to serve idols, so Hashem says, "Don't listen to him. Do not listen to him. Actually, kill him." So we have two places pretty explicitly coming from Hashem Himself, because we know this Torah was written by Hashem Himself. He's telling us number one, never to take away any of the mitzvahs. So he said, "Don't add any mitzvahs. Don't take away any mitzvahs." 
The Torah is perfect, pristine as is. It doesn't need your input. No additions, no subtractions. And number two, if a Navi comes along and tells us to serve idols, you shouldn't serve. Now, just in the details of the idols, it should be pretty obvious that if a Navi comes along and tells us to serve idols, the Torah says don't listen, all the more so, kol shikane, if the Navi tells us not to listen to the Torah anymore. Idols is a detail in the Torah. Yes, it's shkula, k'nei kol mitzvahs, but sof kol sof, in the end of the day, it's really only a detail of the Torah. If a Navi comes along and tells us don't listen to the entire Torah, that's pretty obvious as well that Hashem is telling us not to listen to that. So we have pretty much explicit commandments in the Torah itself saying, do not change my instructions. And I will, and if somebody comes along and tells you to, to not listen to my instructions anymore, don't listen to him. So that's Hashem himself telling us these instructions are always applicable and you can't change them. It seems clear as day that we shouldn't under any circumstance think that the Torah has been replaced. Let's assume for a second that Hashem changed his mind and give different instructions. That means that Hashem would have known, Mitrila, since he knows everything, that at some point he's going to give the Torah to Klai Yisrael, and at some point Klai Yisrael is going to fail, and he's going to give a new Torah to somebody else. Well, it would be pretty funny then if he were to write in his Torah these instructions never to change them. As if I, if he were to write that you can't change under any circumstances his Torah, or if a Navi comes along and tells you not to listen to her anymore, you shouldn't listen to him. It would just be a pretty funny thing if he understood initially that he was going to change it. So why would he write in his Torah not to ever change it? Because you have to claim that Hashem knew that he was going to change it, yet he wrote in his Torah not to change anything. And despite that, change it. I mean, it's, it's almost, we would never say, do that ourselves. And to say that Hashem would do that is, is lunacy, absolute lunacy. Why would the Torah give permission itself to say that if this and this happens, it's not applicable anymore? And not only did it not do that, it does the exact opposite. It says under, pretty much under any circumstance, don't change the Torah. If I know that Hashem has spoken himself through the Torah and it says not to add or subtract anything, why would I come along and accept that someone else says, someone else comes along and says differently, why would I accept what he's saying as opposed to what I have explicit from Hashem himself? Hashem himself tells me don't change it. Someone else comes along and says Hashem did change it. Why would I listen to the second person as opposed to HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself? Now the claim that, that the claim would be that Hashem rejected us because of our sins. And that's certainly what some religions, maybe at least one religion, claims. The problem with that is besides for the fact what we just said, and that's an insurmountable problem, but let's even add more, which is that if you look in Sefer Vayikra, Perk Chavav, it talks pretty clearly about how bad things, terrible things are going to happen to Klai so when they do Averas. And at the end of it, from really from Pasuk Lamed Aleph on until Ramem Vav, let's say, it talks about how Hashem is going to put us into Galus and so on and so forth. But in the end of the day, HaKadosh Baruch will bring us back and we'll do Tshuva, maybe not a full Tshuva, whatever the details are. But here it says in Pasuk Mem Dalev, Afgam Bezois. Hashem says, even when they're in the land of the enemies, I won't, I won't be moist from them, I won't be disgusted by them, Giul, even more disgusted, to destroy them, won't destroy them, or to break the bris with them. I'll remember the first bris. So the, after all these things, Hashem says, I will remember the bris. And even in Pasuk Membeis, I'll remember the bris of Ram Yitzhak Yaakov. So it definitely talks about in the Torah how we are going to sin and fail in many, many ways, yet Hashem ultimately will not break the bris. If you look in Sefer Devarim, Sefer Devarim also has a Toichicha, so Perek Chavches has a Toichicha in Sefer Devarim, also even worse Toichicha than in Sefer Vayikra. And yet still in 
Perak Lamid, which is two Prakim after that. Hakarash Brachu says, you're going to do tshuva. You'll do tshuva there, all those places. And it'll bring us back to Eretz Yisrael. And this is the Umar Hashem Alkech Zavavcha Vizav Zarecha, Liyav Hashem Lakecha, Chulavavcha Namshevcha, Manchayecha, all these things. Hakarish Baruchu is telling us that at the end we're going to do tshuva, and then, like Imam Samashiach is talking about, and Hashem will be back with us, we Masha Shechina, whatever these things mean. But clearly, it's pretty clear that despite the fact that there will be Averas, Hashem says pretty explicitly that despite all that, at the end of the day, I'm not going to, I'm not going to reject you. That's pretty clear what it says in the Chumash. So it's a pretty weak argument to make that Hashem will reject us because of sins. There's no reason to assume that that's true reading the Chumash, and every it's the opposite is true. Everything you see in the Chumash gives you the reason to assume the exact opposite, that despite the fact that there will be Averas, the Klaisa will get to a very low level, Hashem, despite that, will not reject them completely. So these are pretty very tenuous at best, and, and I'm being very gracious when I say tenuous. These It's almost insane, these these claims. They have, there's no basis at all for them. Well, it's very famous that there are many places where Hashem says there's a bris oilam, that's a bris forever. Okay, there's also It's also true, but just to add to everything as well, it's also true. But I think this is enough to show that in the Chumash itself, there's no reason to assume at all that Hashem will break off this bris between us and Hashem and Klaes and Hashem, and that there's no reason to assume that Hashem will give a new Torah. In fact, everything that you read suggests the exact opposite, that this Torah is forever and the bris with Klai Israel is forever. And since this is Hashem himself writing this, so why would I listen to anybody else who says differently? Now, when it comes to the other religions, so we, we spoke a bit, a little, a little bit about before, besides the facts, but I want to mention a different point now, is besides the fact that we have no proof as to why we should believe that Hashem gave a new Torah, which is in a, like we said before, that it's only one person saying this, so it's your word against Hashem's word, ultimately. Hashem said in the Chumash, he's not going to give a new Torah. And now they have one person coming along and saying, God spoke to me. Okay, so there's no reason for me to believe this person. But here it's actually much stronger. There's a very famous story between a, a rabbi and a, a Muslim rabbi, whatever. I'm not sure what that's called. And he, um, the, this Muslim wanted to debate this rabbi, Jewish rabbi, obviously. And, the Jew didn't want to debate him. Obviously, not, no no good usually comes about that, certainly in a Muslim land. Because the Muslim pushed him, he decided, he pushed him eventually, and they said, okay, he agreed to debate. He said, So the Jew said, you know, but before we have a debate, I just want to, I, I have a riddle for you, and I want you to answer the following, if you could help me with the riddle. So the Muslim said, okay, no problem. So the Jew said as follows, that there was a story, this is a riddle, there's a story about a king, that the king had a messenger, he wanted to send his messenger to a, a different king. And he had a message to give to the to the other king. So he he picked his messenger, and he delivered. The, he gave the message to the messenger. He gave him the note, whatever it was, and he said to him that under no circumstance are you going to should you not deliver this message. You know, you have to deliver this message, no matter what. I, I know that there are people who don't want this message to get delivered, and you have to deliver the message. Under no circumstance are you going to be able to not deliver the message. You 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 have to give this message to this king. It's very important. And go go ahead. So okay. So the king sends him sends a messenger. The messenger is on his way, and lo and behold, somebody comes up to the messenger and sends says that he's he was sent. The second person says he was sent from the king, and the king told him to not deliver the message. Right, so now that's the story. So the the Jew says to the Muslim, "What would you do? What would you tell the messenger? What should you do?" 
So the Muslim said, he said, it's pretty obvious. I, I, the, the messenger got direct instructions from the king himself. The only person who should be able to undo those instructions are the king himself, because anybody else is less trustworthy by definition, but it's just not as good as having the message, message from the king himself. So if the king himself wants to undo his, what, what his instructions, then he himself would have to do it. Anybody, especially, especially since he said, don't listen to anybody else. He said, under all circumstances, I want you to keep, do this, go on this mission, keep this, uh, do, give this message to the other king. So if somebody else comes along, of course he shouldn't listen. He should only listen to the king himself. So the Jew says to him, Ah, so now, now you understand why exactly we don't accept your prophet, your sort of quote unquote prophet. And that was all he needed to say. This story is a very strong story. It's the same point that we would say to anybody who questions Yiddishkeit. Very simple. Kadosh Rocco came to us personally, and now you, somebody else, are claiming that he is reneging on his deal and he's going back on it and he's giving a new Torah. Well, if he didn't want us to do the mission, why wouldn't he tell us? A very similar story. Is talked about in different places. The story goes about a father who's, let's say, head of the tribe or a king, whatever it is, and he dies, and there's two sons who are vying for his position, and they're, they're arguing about it, who's going to be the next king. So one day, one of the sons gets up in front of, in front of everybody, and he says that last night, my father appeared to me in a dream, and he told me that he wants me to be the king. So that's it, that should settle it. Now the other son says to him, responds and says, if the, if my father would have came to me or all of them, the people and told them that he wants you to be the king, that would have been something that would have, we would have listened to. But since you're claiming he came to you, there's no reason to listen. And that's the same, same idea. Hashem already came to millions of people, Kla Yisrael, and told them exactly what he wanted for them. He said, this is my, these are my instructions. Here you go. This is exactly what I want from you. Now somebody else comes along and claims that Hashem came to him and told him that he wants to change his mind. This prophet and that prophet, God came to me, has a new, has new instructions. Well, why wouldn't Hashem come to us, Klai Yisrael, again, and tell us he doesn't want us anymore? Or why also wouldn't he not come also again in a mass revelation to, to you guys? If you, the new chosen nation you claim, you claim you're the new chosen nation, so why would Hashem not come to you the same way He came to us if He wants, if He has new plans? And the answers of all this is pretty clear that because Hashem does not do that, Hashem did not do that and never will do that, because He says pretty clear to us that He's not going to change His mind, and this Torah is forever, and the bris is forever. And it's very, very clear that's true. Now just to add one point, which is not really 100% our topic, but just to realize the, the point in this is that all these religions, let's say Christianity and Islam, if you think about it, it would have been much easier to start a religion from scratch rather than to, what they do is they accept the new, the Old Testament, they call it, the Torah. They accept that it happened. And they said that God changed his mind. And that puts them on very, very weak standing. Because again, if anybody knows how to learn Chumash, read Chumash, not even learn Chumash, just read simply the words of the Chumash, understand that it says pretty clearly, Hashem will not change his mind, will not give a new Torah. Yet they claim that they believed it, yet they claim that Hashem did change his mind. Now, why wouldn't they not have just started the religion from scratch? And the answer to that must have been because 
it's very it was imp- almost impossible to because everybody you, you couldn't simply reject the entire Sinai narrative because it was too ingrained of the minds of not only apparently the Jewish people but of all these people. It would again it's much easier to simply say it doesn't start that that never happened that Har Sinai never happened. Start my own religion from scratch. Yet now they have to come onto this whole shtickle Torah basically of explaining that Hashem did give the Torah to Haklai Yisrael, but he changed he changed his mind and there was sins and this and that. It certainly puts them at a much weaker position than if they just would have come straight out and said that God came to me. Never, he, he denied the entire thing about Harsina and, and that God came to me as the first, the first time. But it seems pretty clear that, again, they didn't. And the pretty clearly the reason why is because it was an accepted historical event that God took the Jews out of Egypt and he gave them the Torah Mount Sinai. And therefore, historical events, you can't simply easily wave off. So that's another, another evidence to suggest the, to show how strong the proof is that there was Har Sinai. Okay. So this is, that's the first part of this. That's in terms of whether or not Hashem changed his mind, as it were. He gave a new Torah or not. And it's pretty clear that Harsh Baruch Hu did not give a new Torah. Now the question comes to the second part, which is, making sure that the instructions that Hashem gave us, we're understanding and keeping them properly. In order to understand, to deal with this point, we have to talk about two things. One of them is the oral law, the Torah Shabbat Peh, and the Mesorah. So, meaning, and, and with even in this, it's it's because it's really part of the same thing. The oral law, where the claim is that the Torah Shabbat Peh is the authoritative explanation of the Torah Shabbat Peh, that these are the correct, this is the correct understanding of the Torah Shabbat Peh. That's number one. Number two, the Mesorah is how do we know that we have the right understanding of the Torah Shabbat which ultimately is the Torah Shabbat And those are two parts to this. So let's talk about first a little bit of Torah Shabbat and then we'll just segue e- e- easily into Mesorah as well. The first point about this is as follows. If I had in specific instructions that I wanted to give to whoever under whatever circumstance, but I have very specific instructions I want to give, I know for sure that at some point somebody can come along, along and miss misunderstand or distort. Let's assume that my instructions are very important and a lot, and that there are people who'd want to know them and whatever, and whatever, for whatever reason why. There's a lot at stake, let's say, with my instructions. I could definitely understand. I'm not such a smart guy, but I at least understand this. I can understand that people could come distort or simply misunderstand what my instructions are. So if I had instructions for entire nation, I understand that some people there could, again, either misunderstand or distort my instructions, misses, uh, right, misinterpretation or distortion of what I said, especially if there's a certain vagueness to the way I speak. Let's take a, a document like the American Constitution for uh, just as an example. Now, how many arguments are there in about the bo- most basic ideas in there? So I just want to give one example of this. And I'm not coming to comment on one the, the issues that I'm discussing right now. I just want to use this as an example. Let's say that take the Second Amendment for a moment. There to my knowledge, there are at least three different ways people can interpret the Second Amendment. Either it means that there are no limits on guns to who, what's, no limits on guns whatsoever for any citizen. That's one possibility. Some other take it to mean that only some guns, but some guns not, like modern machine guns or whatever, those aren't included in that. And those, the founding fathers never have allowed those. And some even suggest that there's nothing in the amendment at all to allow civilians to have guns. That, that doesn't mean that. So there's just within that one line or so, a couple lines, there's three vastly different interpretations of what's going on. And that makes a lot of sense. If you give written instructions, it's very, very likely, again, that somebody's going to misinterpret, misunderstand, or 
distort. Because I know human nature, I understand the people's ability to distort things, people's ability to want to accept that distortion. That's certainly, I know that. And even just simply people's uh, sometimes inability to understand properly what's being said. Usually these things are come for distortion, but either way, misinterpretation, misinterpretation or distortion are certainly problems that can be. So I understand this as a, again, not a very intelligent human being. I understand that if I give instructions, that is something that can possibly happen. So if that's the case, what should I do? How would I want, how would I make sure that if I give instructions to the people who I'm giving them to, they completely understand exactly what I want? Well, I think what I would do is I would have to give so, either be extremely clear or give some sort of authoritative explanation, whether it's in the, in the footnotes to it. This is what I mean. I write it somewhere or I give it, if I give it orally, it doesn't make a difference. I have to give some th- sort of author- authoritative interpretation of what I'm saying to make it very clear what I want. And I understand, again, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand, to understand this point, that clearly the more precise, and, and the more precise the detail I want, the more I would have to make sure that it's understood. And certainly the more important the instructions are, the more crucial it will be to make sure that people don't misunderstand it, don't distort it. And we know people could always distort. And no matter what I do, people could always distort. But at least I would make it possible for those who are interested to understand it properly, especially if I spoke in a vague way. But even without that, because even without that point, people could distort things and misunderstand things. So in short, if I had instructions that were important, and certainly the more important, the more detail-oriented, the more I would do this, I would make sure that there's a pretty clear authoritative interpretation, explanation of the instructions that I'm giving to make sure that everybody knows very clearly what I want. If that's the case, then when Hashem gave us the written law, the question would be, does Hashem know all this, what I just said? Now, it's it's an undisputable fact that the, the Torah, the written Torah, Torah Shabbat Sav, is, can be interpreted in multiple ways. That's obvious. You, it's obvious from just reading it, and it's obvious from his, history how many interpretations there have been in the Torah Shabbat Sav. So if that's the case, it's should be pretty clear that the Torah Shabbat by itself is not really enough. Again, assuming that there are specific instructions, unless you're going to make an argument that Hashem gave these words and allowed anybody to interpret them however they wanted, and no matter what interpretation a person gave, you're somehow fulfilling the Torah that Hashem gave, which is pretty, pretty not true. Uh, it's pretty ins- insane to assume such a thing. So if you don't assume that, we have to assume that there are very specific things that Hashem wants from us. And because the Torah Shabbat the written law is very not clear in certain circumstances, it's, it's very amenable to different interpretations. So you have to assume, it's very logical to assume, it's not a proof, but it's certainly very logical to assume that Hashem would give an authoritative explanation of the written law. When Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Har Sinai and he got to the Torah Shabbat Sav, did he not ask what these things meant? Like he had to have asked certain things, certain, certain things we only know because of an of a explanation. We only know what Totofos means because of an explanation. Where do we get this explanation? There are certain things that just must have been that Moshe Rabbeinu must have asked for details about this, what this means, what this means, and, and so on and so forth, how to apply this, when to apply this. There's so many details that one could just think about. Again, just take that Second Amendment for a second. Let's say Lahav Shem writes to Moshe Rabbeinu the Second Amendment. 
And so you don't think he's going to ask the following question. He was obviously a pretty smart guy. He would ask the question, does it mean everybody could have guns? Does it mean only some guns? Does it mean that only an army could have guns? What exactly is the interpretation of this? There are at least things like that in the Torah Shabbat as well. So obviously, Moshe Benu, when he went up to Har Sinai, asked certain things from Hashem. And again, unless you're going to say, Hashem either answered him, option one, he answered him, whatever people think it means, for them, that's what it means, which is silly, Hashem wasn't a liberal. Option number two is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave very specific instruction. This is what it means. Okay, that's the second option. And that makes a lot of sense. Now, just as an aside, it doesn't mean the Torah Shabbat Peh overrides the Torah Shabbat Shabbat. It's not what we're saying. But rather, it's the, it's the authoritative explanation of it. It's equal to the Torah Shabbat Shabbat. The Torah Shabbat Shabbat says one thing, that's from God. The Torah Shabbat Peh is equally from Hashem himself as well, even though the words aren't written the same way as the Torah Shabbat Shabbat. So in that sense, the Torah Shabbat Shabbat is more direct from Hashem. But in terms of what we're, what's binding on us and understanding Hashem's will, Torah Shabbat is authoritative just as much as Torah Shabbat in a certain sense more authoritative. But again, like I said, it's not, it doesn't mean it overrides the Torah Shabbat It just means that sometimes when a Torah Shabbat sounds like one thing, the Torah Shabbat tells you it doesn't mean that. So in that sense, it's more authoritative, but it doesn't, it's just the proper explanation of the Torah Shabbat And again, there are some places in the Torah, in the Torah that Hashem self tells Moshe, as I have commanded you, Kasher Tzivcha, by Shrita says Kasher Tzivcha, that there's no place in, place written in the written, in the Torah, that Hashem commanded Moshe about, or instructed Moshe Rabbeinu about Shechita. So that's just another point. It, it seems pretty logical to assume that Hashem gave specific instructions to Moshe Rabbeinu, to Kla Yisrael, in order that we could fully, properly understand his instructions, his written instructions that he gave. Again, that's just in a, in a vacuum in a certain sense, that without any historical evidence, which we're going to get to in a moment, but it just makes logical sense that if Hashem, if you give instructions that are vague, that why he made them vague, that's a different discussion. But if there are some, if there's some vagueness to instructions, so it makes a lot of sense that you will give an authoritative explanation of those instructions. Again, assuming also that you understand human beings. If I understand that human beings, it's incumbent to distort things, Kolshkin, 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 that Hashem will understand exactly that about human beings as well. He understands human beings much better than me. He also knows the future. So it's pretty obvious to me that it makes a lot of sense that Hashem will give an authoritative explanation of the Torah Shabbat and that's what we claim is the Torah Shabbat Peh. Now, all this is without even historical evidence, but it happens to be that this idea is backed up by historical evidence. The Jewish people for thousands of years, well, let's say at least a thousand years, we'll see why I'm going to say that in a moment, believed in a Torah Peh, as we have recorded. That's our claim anyways. Again, that's the claim, which is also significant in and of itself. That That's the claim, which we'll discuss maybe later. But it's only when the Tzedukim came along a thousand years after Matan Torah, that was when the first group came along and stopped believing in the Torah Shabbat Peh. It was a historical, not historical fact, but it was something that all the Jews at the time believed in. The tefillin that we have are from over 2,000 years ago. It doesn't say anywhere how to make tefillin in the Torah Shabbat Where did it all come from? And how did they all have the exact same tefillin that we have now? Or how do they have, where, which is where do their tefillin come from? Let's put it without that, without nowadays. Where do their tefillin come from? How do they know how to do this? And it just happens to be the same tefillin that we have in the in the Gemara. So it makes a lot of sense that it's the same, it comes from the same source. But just even bef- before that point for a second, it's, it's pretty clear established fact. Certainly that's our claim that the Jewish people always believe in the Torah Shabbat Peh 
for a thousand years. And, and then came along one group, the Karaim, the Tztukim, or the Tztukim, the Baitusim, who claimed that there's no Torah Shabbat. But how do you deal with such a thing? So there's a very famous story, another story told about a rabbi and a Karite. I don't know if it's a true story, but the point is, is a true point either way. Um, also about a debate that the rabbi, the Karite wanted to debate this rabbi in front of the king, whoever the king was. And so they both went to the king. And in this king, in the throne room, apparently you weren't allowed to wear any shoes. So the Karite took off his shoes, but the rabbi didn't know, didn't know this. And he walked in with shoes to the king's throne room, which is something they shouldn't have done. <clears throat> so the Karite points this out right away. He says, look how disrespectful this rabbi is. Um, and so on and so whatever. I guess he was trying to make his point with this, that he was wearing shoes and he shouldn't have done it. Okay. So the rabbi was very quick on his feet and he thought about a response right away. And he said as follows that, um, he said to the king, you know, the reason why I wore shoes is because these, the Karayim, these Karites are notorious shoe robbers. They like to steal shoes. How do I know this? Because Moshe Rabbeinu, when he spoke to God at, at, uh, Mount Sinai, but it was before, in the beginning of Par- uh, Parsha Shmois, Hashem tells him, take off your shoes. And he says that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't want to take off his shoes because he was worried that the Karites were going to steal his shoes. Okay. That's what he said. So the Karite turns to him and says, um, that's crazy. The, the Karites were, haven't been around for a thousand years. <clears throat> we only came a thousand years after. There was Moshe Rabbeinu, then a thousand years of Jewish history, and then we came along. So the king turns to the Karite and says, really, is this true that there's been a thousand years of history, of Jewish history, and then you come along and make your claim? Oh, that's, sorry, let me clarify. The, the Karites were even close to 2,000 years. Sorry. <clears throat> it's Tukim were 1,000 years, but the Karites were even 2,000 years. But whatever he said, Karites, it's Tukim, but it doesn't make a difference. It was a 1,000 years of Jewish history, at least, before anybody on the record came on denying the authenticity of the Tersh So the king says, I'm done with you. I don't have to debate. And the point is a very clear debate. If you have a historical fact proven for a thousand years and someone comes along and now denies it, the onus is not on me to prove that it's true. The onus is on you is to give me a reason why I should believe what you're saying is true. Everybody has assumed a certain thing for a thousand years at unquestioned. And now you come along and say it didn't happen. Who says? Why in the world should I believe you? That's a very not strong point that you're making. And that is the idea that there was a Jewish belief that there is a Torah Shabbat Peh, that there was a Torah Shabbat Peh, that Moshe Rabbeinu came down to Har Sinai, took with him the explanation of the Torah Shabbat and that was given over every single generation. And that is what the Jewish people have. In order to believe that the Torah Shabbat was fake, you have to believe, again, point number one is you have to believe, this is, people don't discuss this point much, but the point number one that you have to believe is that Hashem didn't give an authoritative explanation, interpretation of his Torah. To, and again, that's, it doesn't make sense to me to say that he wouldn't do such a thing. But again, that point one is you have to believe this, that Hashem did not give one authoritative explanation of his Torah. And he basically said, however anybody interprets it over the years, over the generations, whoever, whoever it is, that's what, it, that's what works for him, we'll say, which again, doesn't make much sense. But number one, you have to believe that. And then you have to believe number two, that some people at some time, we'll call them rabbis, came up with this idea and got everybody to believe that really it came from Moshe Rabbeinu. At Harsinai. And again, just to talk back to our point about Harsinai, if that would have been true, it'd just been a very funny thing that a bunch of rabbis come a thousand years after Harsinai, and they say this was given at Harsinai, and everybody just accepts that. And the story everybody tells is only that Moshe Rabbeinu got this at Harsinai, which nobody mentions that the rabbis told them this. Nobody mentions if, if, if the rabbis would have told them this at and, and they, they ask the following question, understand, how come I've never heard of this before? So the rabbis say, oh, only we've had it before. So 
somebody should mention something like that. No, why would nobody know of this story? At some point, the rabbis said that we have this, even if you believe the rabbis. So you tell your child <clears throat> at some point that we didn't know about it and the, and the rabbis had it the entire time, only they had it the entire time. And then they told us. That's not the story at all. The story at all is Moshe Benon came and gave it over to all of Kali. So even though he taught it specifically, people and Smicha, which we'll speak about soon, was given to specific people. It doesn't mean that only the Torah Shabbat was only given to them. The Torah Shabbat was available for anybody to come and learn. So you have to assume all that. On top of all the fact that within this story, you have to assume that all the rabbis got together and conspired to do this, which is also crazy. To, to assume that a bunch of people all get together to conspire and to fool everybody it just doesn't work that way. I mean, one person makes sense. One person, you could say, he teaches something that's not true. To assume that a lot of people got together, all the rabbis got together, and if it wasn't all the rabbis, it was one person. So then it just becomes, who is this one person? Why have we never heard of this one person before? Shouldn't he be a pretty important person, an individual? And what exactly would his claim be? That only that Moshe Rabbeinu spoke to Yeshua, and Yeshua to one person, and one person to one person, and that one person eventually spoke to this rabbi, and that's why he has the old Torah Shabbat himself. I mean, all these are missing from Jewish history, in short, right? We could go through this ad nauseum, but all these things are missing from Jewish history. The clear, the clear Messiah that we have is that there was a Torah Shabbat from Moshe Rabbeinu, generation after generation, given over to all the Jews at the time, and only a thousand years after that did somebody claim that it wasn't true. So, these are all reasons, evidence to believe that there should be a Torah Shabbat Peh. Like I said, it makes a lot of logical, rational sense to assume it, especially based on the historical evidence of it. That That is certainly what Klai Yisrael believed. And like I said, the tefillin of what we have is the same, even though it doesn't say clearly at all what tefillin are. From 2,000 years ago, it's the same. It doesn't say anywhere in the Torah what tefillin are. And so on and so forth. And many, many other proofs to this effect. But these are, to me, the main main ideas. Now let's talk about Masoira a little bit. How can we be confident that the Torah, Torah and Torah Shabbat Peh, has been passed down faithfully? And how do we know the rabbis haven't corrupted the religion, even from the very beginning or from later on, whatever it is? This is a very common thing you will hear, that the rabbis corrupted the religion, that there was two types of religions and or there was some sort of vagueness in Jewish history, in Jew- Judaism, and the rabbis made their own rabbinic religion, and they corrupted the religion, and there was a different type of religion. Whenever, insert whatever religion you want to say, that either it's Christianity will say something, other types of Jews will say something as well. doesn't make a difference, but they will claim that the rabbis corrupted their religion. So how do we know that this hasn't happened? And really, there's two things to deal with in this discussion. Number one, there's mistakes and corruptions. Which I want to deal with first. Corruptions, as we understand, would be that there's the rabbis on purpose distorted the Torah. And mistakes are just simply mistakes that since the rabbis were human, maybe they made mistakes. And how do we know what we have is the right understanding of Torah? Let's talk about mistakes first. There's a classic argument that people like to bring about the oral law, which is from Broken Telephone. Everybody knows the game Broken Telephone, that if you pass a message to one person in a line of about 10 people, it's a relatively simple message. The beginning of the message, at the beginning of the line, the message will be one thing, and by the end, it'll be something different. So they claim the same thing by a Torah Shabbat Peh, or they ask, why would not be the same thing by a Torah Shabbat Peh? How can we assume that a Torah Shabbat Peh was given over without mistakes? Now, this analogy from the Torah Shabbat Peh to broken telephone is a complete mistake. The two situations are not similar at all, and there are many reasons why. I'm only going to go through a couple. Number one, is that this game is done where everyone has a very limited amount of time. You have about 
maybe two minutes, whatever exactly the, the time limit is, you get the message and you pass it on. That's number one. As opposed to learning Torah can be done sometimes decades. People take years and years and years it takes them to master the Torah. The Gemara has examples of people learning things 40 times on the spot. And the Gemara says we should learn things even 101 times. So there's a big difference between somebody who gets a statement and passes it on within the next 5-10 seconds versus somebody who gets a halacha, learns it 40 times on that day, and then spends time again and again and again learning it until it gets to 100 times. 101 times even, over the, over the span of years. That's a pretty big, significant difference. Also, there's nothing really to lose, to gain or to lose by this game. There's no stakes in this game. And normally the game that's played, you pass this message, he passes this message. Nothing, there's nothing at stake at all. But let's say we were to add some sort of incentive to the game, that if you get it right, you tell all the people in the line that if you get it right, if you get the same message from the beginning to the end, you get, everyone gets $100. So then would the results be the same? So actually people have done this experiment and it actually turns out that when you add stakes, even $5 or $10, it changes the results a lot. And that makes a lot of sense why people would do that. By the Torah, anybody who understands what Torah is understands the stakes are extremely high. If you're somebody who's, who's doing Torah and trying to pass it down to the next generation, if you understand a little bit about the value of Torah, how this gives me olam haba, how this is perfection of the world, perfection of the person, and so on and so forth, you understand the stakes are extremely high. You're not going to just pass on the message haphazardly like you do in broken telephone. So that's those are just two reasons, but there's many, many other reasons as well. I'm not going to discuss it anymore, but based on the things that we're going to say in a moment, we'll also deal with these. But those are just very, very two basic issues of why it's a silly argument to bring from broken telephone game. The last thing I'll mention just as a introduction to the next point is the type of people involved and the, the way that you pass it on. So let's talk about this part now. This this part right now is also going to address mistakes and corruptions. We're just going to make general points and this will address everything that we've discussed. The transmission of the Torah was in a very unique way. First of all, it had a Rebbe. So let's start with Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu, Hashem himself put his stamp of approval on Moshe Rabbeinu. Hashem repeared to us in front of Moshe, appeared to all of Klai Yisrael, and Moshe Benu then went up to Har Sinai, which is Hashem saying, this is my guy, this is who I trust. So Moshe Benu had, as it were, an approval from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Everything was riding on the fact on Moshe Benu. Moshe Benu now gave smicha, we'll say, to Yehoshua. That means he verified and certified Yehoshua. That means Yehoshua was certified and verified by the greatest person, the greatest Talmud Chacham, the greatest Rebbe that there ever was and ever will be, is Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe says to all of Klaisa, you can trust him. Like we said, we already know Hashem approved of Moshe, which means that Hashem is approving of Moshe and approving of Moshe's approval, which means Hashem approves of Yehoshua. That means he must have known that Yehoshua was worthy, and certainly he did. Hashem himself chose Yehoshua, actually. But not only that, but Moshe Rabbeinu also teaches Aaron, he teaches Aaron's sons, and he also teaches the 70 Zikanim, and the 70 Zikanim ultimately teach it to Kaisa. But the reason why it has this type of setup is because you'll see in a second, it has Yeshua, and then Aaron, and then the 70 Zikanim. All those people are basically in charge of the transmission of the Torah. Yeshua to, from Moshe to Yeshua, or really from Hashem to Moshe to all Klaisel, but through Yeshua, through this Canaan, through Aaron, whoever it was, but even everyone has somebody who they receive from and someone who they then give on the turn to somebody else. Think about what would happen right now if one of the Zakanim tried to falsify or corrupt something. Right away, there would be 69 other Zakanim and even more people who would not let it. 
So right away, you have a system where you're protected. Yeshua now gives smicha to somebody else. Again, when you give smicha, you're putting your entire name on the line. Like we said, for Moshe Beno, this is the entire religion. Moshe Beno gives it to Yeshua. Yeshua also was extremely careful then who he gave it to. So if he gave it to this Kenim, let's say, or individuals, whoever it was, there were always certain people in Klai Israel. The Torah was given from everybody, but there were always certain people in Klai Israel who were more achrai, more responsible for the transmission of the Torah. And we know about these people and we'll discuss these people later on. But just even for now, the system in place there was a, clearly a protective system in place. There were enough experts who knew the Torah that if anybody would step out of line, they would pounce and react. You have the Zekenim, and then you have Nevi'im, and you have the Anshek Nesigdola. Even from Moshe Rabbeinu's time onwards, there was never one person who was in charge of the whole thing. There means you have what we call checks and balances. People are there to make sure nobody's going to falsify. Unless you're going to assume everybody wants to falsify, which is something that logic does not cannot accept. That means that there were enough people who understood the Torah very well, who knew it, who were experts in it, that if somebody would come to falsify it, certainly somebody would pounce and react. And what what actually happened? This is exactly what actually happened. After a thousand years of no one questioning the oral law, the, the Torah Shabbat Peh, the moment that it happened, the Chachamim, the sages, pounced. There were many things that they did. They wrote in the Mishnayos. There are many things that they did that they did to try and offset the influence of the Tzedukim. Of course, they pounced in, in, in trying to say, explain how they're wrong, obviously. Not, not only that, it's, they actually made takanas to try and offset the power of the tzedukim. There was a huge fight about this between the chachamim and tzedukim. That's exactly what you would expect. That since the Torah was given to enough people, enough experts, enough people who with enough character, which we'll discuss later on, to know, to know the Torah as well, as well as to protect it. So it was given to a lot of these people. So it makes sense that the moment somebody would step out of line, they would react. And, it, and that exactly is what happens. We see exactly what happens when, some, when someone tried to unravel the whole thing. And again, this has nothing to do with broken telephone. This is a whole protective system put in place. The only possibility, like we said, is mass corruption, which is, again, ridiculous. But we see very clearly that the whole system of smicha, which is, I'm putting my approval to you. And again, when Moshe Rabbeinu chooses a Talmud Yoshua, he knows everything is riding on this. So he, put, he makes sure, he wisely chooses who he's going to give it to. Yoshua will do the same thing. Yoshua, when he chooses somebody to give smicha, he's saying, this person has my approval. You trusted me because you trusted Moshe, because you trusted Hashem. Now I'm giving it over to this person. Now, that's not a light thing. Yeshua also, for sure, must have chosen the right person to give smicha, to pass on the Torah. Whether it was Pinchas, whether it was Eliakon, whoever it was, must have had the correct character development, which we're going to speak about, and the, the correct expertise in order that you could trust this person. This person is the Baal HaMesar, is the one in charge of the transmission of the Torah. And then you have this Kenim, you have the Anshei Knesset you have so many people who are involved that to assume that it didn't, that it got corrupted, or even small mistakes, people would have corrected them for that. So certainly have this protective system. But now we have an even, make this point even stronger. I want to make this point much, much stronger. And to that, we have to take a step back for one moment. Let's ask ourselves a bunch of questions about Masoira, about a lot of things that we want to understand about our religion, especially nowadays. From where does the authority of Gedolim, of Rabbanim come from? All these people, from Yoshua to Pinchas to Elia Kohen to Shmuel Hanavi, to say David Melech, Eliyahu Navi, and so on and so forth, Ravina, Ravashi, Rabbi Nasi, the Rambam, the Ramban, the Rashi, whoever, all these people to the last generation, to nowadays, we're all Gedolim, we'll call them. Where does the, their authority come from exactly? This is, to me, is one of the most important parts of this discussion. Who has the authority over interpretation of the Torah? Why is it the Gedolim? Well, the Rabbanim have it. The Gedolim of every generation. Well, why is it? Why do they have all this story? We realize 
that everything that we have in Judaism is from every single thing. The entire religion is is because is based on them. From the moment that it was certainly from the moment that it was recorded into the Mishnah and the Gemara, that's where all our Judaism comes from. So all our Judaism is centralized into one place of the Gemara, which is understood by the Gedolim of every single generation. The truth is, this is even true before this point, because it mentioned already from Yeshua to whoever the Zikanian, whoever he gave smicha to, was also in their hands as well. But let's even talk about nowadays more. Everything that we have is from the Gemara. Let's just focus on that. And the Gemara, the Rishonim understand the Gemara. And the Achronim understand the Rishonim. And so on and so forth. Now, let's ask ourselves the question, why is their interpretation better than ours? When someone comes along and says, you can't argue on the Rambam. The Rambam says that he can't argue on the Rambam. Well, why not? Why can't I argue on the Rambam? Why is he more authoritative than me? Isn't the Rambam also a human being? Couldn't he have made mistakes? What about Ravina Ravashi? You're going to tell me Ravina Ravashi, I can't argue on them because it's in the Gemara. What? So why can't I argue on the Gemara? Well, you're going to tell me that the Kesemisha says Kleisa accepted the Gemara. Okay, why can't I argue on that Kesemishna? <laughs> it's all circular. You're going to tell me there's a, there's a Pasuk that says, there's a Sefer Chinuch that says that every single generation, you have to listen to the Rabbanim of every single, every single generation. Okay, let me argue on that Sefer Chinuch. Or maybe I'm a, 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 a Rav. Maybe I'm one of those Rabbanim that everybody has to listen to. But even more basic, who interpreted that Pasuk? How do you know that's what the Pasuk means? Well, it's the Rabbanim who explained the Pasuk. So again, why can't I argue on that? Gemara understands a certain thing. Again, let me understand better than the Gemara. Who says the Gemara? Who said, why can't I understand the Chumash better than the Gemara itself? And then all this comes into play. What about, again, listening to any of the Rabbanim, like we said about the Sefer Chinuch. Sefer Chinuch nowadays, whatever, but any Rabban, why, what, where does their authority come from? If you're going to tell me their authority comes from the Pasuk, I will simply ask you, what is the interpretation of that Pasuk? And you'll tell me, that it, it says to listen to the rabbis, and I say, how do you know that's interpretation? And you're going to tell me the rabbi said it? So again, you can't prove something that you're trying, to, you can't use something that you're trying to prove already. It's circular. I don't have to, I'm not subjected to that interpretation. Or we're asking, why am I subjected to their interpretation? Why can't I interpret the psukim better than this? Again, you're going to tell me the Gemara, this, whatever, why is there something called Yerida Sadoros? Why can't I argue on a previous generation? Moshe Rabbeinu was a human being. Don't we know that he made mistakes? The Vilna Gaon says that he made a mistake in a certain area. Uh, many, I'm saying in one particular area, but everybody, many Rishonim say Moshe Rabbeinu made certain mistakes. So if Moshe Rabbeinu made mistakes, maybe he made other mistakes in the interpretation of the Torah, Chas Rishonim. What about all the other Rabbanim, the Mishnah, the Gemara? They also made mistakes. They're also human. Nobody's going to argue that they're infallible and they're not human. They're Malachim. No, they're human beings as well. So maybe they made mistakes. So what are we going to say to all this? So the answer to this is very, very simple, very, very powerful, and extremely, extremely important, because our entire religion rides on this. If, I, if, if what I'm saying right now is true, then there's no more religion, because everything we have in the religion is based on this point. It really, it all comes back to the Gemara, the Mishnah, ultimately the Torah Shabbat Peh, which is what we said, is the authoritative explanation of the Torah Shabbat and if we undermine all of these things, then we're back to just the Torah Shabbat and that could mean anything, that could mean anything. But our entire religion relies on the answer to this question of why we have rabbinic authority. The answer is very, very simple, and like I said, extremely powerful. There are two things that we need to know. Number one, expertise, and number two, character, righteousness. Because of these two things, we can have confidence in our Masorah. We know about the greatest people in all of Jewish history, the leaders of every generation, the ones who are considered the torchbearers, the, the, the ones who transmit the Torah. We know about them. We know them intimately. We know by learning 
their works. We know by studying about them as people. But most, most importantly, we know them as having personal experience. And this is one of the reasons why I think it's probably the most important reason to have a Rebbe, is to have personal experience with somebody, certainly a Rebbe, but really more importantly, a Gadol, really. Somebody to, you should have personal experience with the great Torah leaders, Torah minds, Torah characters of your generation. Now let's talk about, in terms of scholarship, for, for a moment. We have somebody like the Vilna Gaon. The Vilna Gaon, there are many, many examples of his scholarship. Let's give one example. The Vilna Gaon says that in all of Tanakh, we know that the the document for divorce is called a get. So that's a document, a get, gimel and gimel tes. It's a document that by definition, its very nature is a document of separation. It comes to separate a man and a wife from marriage. So it's called a get. The Vilnagon says, he points out, that there are no place, there's no place in the entire Tanakh where the letters gimel and tes come next to, next to each other. And the reason is because in essence, a gimel and a test is a separating thing. And that's why they shouldn't be next to each other. They're, they should be separate because it's, that's what it comes to do. That's what the Villagon says. Now, to know that, and there's no computers back then, to know such a thing like that is just unbelievable. It means you have to know the entire Tanakh clear. Let's give other, other examples, just as, since we're on it. The Vilnagon says that the word for sukkah, there's two ways to spell sukkah. One is samich vav chaf The gematria of that is 66 plus 25, which would be 91. And the wrong way of spelling sukkah is samich chaf which is 85. Okay, so the right way of spelling sukkah, samich vav chaf is 91. Is Gmatri 91 and the Samach Chafhe is 85. The Vilagon points out examples of Pasal Sukkahs and examples of Kasher Sukkahs in all of Tershabalpet that we have. Babli, Yushalmi, Zeft, everything. The Vilagon points out that if you count up the amount of Kasher Sukkahs that there are examples of in all of Tershabalpet, you'll get the number 91. And if you count up the Pasal Sukkahs, you'll get the number 85. And that's because Sukkah is spelt in the right way, the Gematri is 91, and Sukkah Pasal Samach Chafhe, when it's missing, lacking above, is up to 85. To know such a thing is just mind-boggling. Absolutely mind We know it now because the Vilna Gaon did the work. But to know such a thing is just absolutely mind-boggling. As an aside, Mikhail Kanievsky actually on the first thing, he asks the question that he says there are other letters, not just Gimel and Tess, <coughs> that don't come next to each other. So Mikhail Kanievsky also knew Tanakh completely Balpet, word for word, not only word for word, but letter by letter. Now, when we talk about that's Mikhail Kanievsky, and that's the Vilna Goin, and we could spend hours talking about the unbelievable knowledge, expertise, the depth of the Vilna Goin. And that's the Vilna Goin was at, or Mikhail Velozhin was a Talmud of the Vilna Goin, and he was asked, does the Gra compare to the Rambam. And he answered, this is quoted in, in the back, is quoted, this, this answer, he says, Ulai Ramban. He said, maybe like the Ramban. That means he's not like the Rambam, and he's maybe like the Ramban. So if you go back in time, we have the Ramban, and we have the Rambam, who was apparently greater than the Vilna Gaon. And we, we know the Rambam. We know him intimately. We know that he wrote the Mishnah Torah without a computer. It was, it's an unbelievable work. It's not only the amount of knowledge that you need, but the way to put it together and how you put it together and how you could, how many Sfarim are written on the Rambam. And he put it together in such a way. It's just absolutely mind boggling the genius of the Rambam. And then you have that. And the Rambam was not a compared comparison at all to the Amoraim. It's at some point we just have, don't even have the words to describe that the Rambam is nothing compared to the Amoraim. In the Amoraim, they say about themselves, if we're like donkeys, then the, the earlier generation are like human beings. And if we're like human beings, the early generation is like Malachim. That's 
could be even within the Amoraim. There are five generations of Amoraim. Then you have the Tanaim. You have people like Rabbi Kiva. Again, you don't have words to describe these people because we sort of, even at the Vilna Goin, we sort of don't really have a perception. Apparently, Rabbi Cutler once said to his students, says, try as hard as you possibly can to imagine the Vilna Goin, what kind of person he would be. He says he wouldn't even reach and I wonder nowadays if that's even, if we would say such a thing that I, I, I would just highly doubt if we couldn't even imagine who someone like the Chafetz Chaim was. Forget about Ruchaim Velazhner. The, the, per, the type of people we're talking about. Yes, there are human beings. Of course, there are human beings, but not the same type of human beings as me and you. If we're donkeys, they're human beings. If we're like the Amoraim themselves. So scholarship. And then again, that's only the Tanaim. Then you go back to the Navim, and then ultimately Moshe Rabbeinu. Scholarship like this allows us to trust that they're getting it right. But there's another point over here. There's the righteousness involved. Righteousness allows us to feel safe that they didn't corrupt anything and take all the power for themselves. It's like if I imagine I would tell you, if anybody here knows anything about Ramosha Feinstein, anything about him, for, for sure the people who knew him. If you imagine, imagine going to people who knew Ramosha Feinstein personally, and you would, you would say to them, how do we know Ramosha Feinstein didn't take all the power and corrupt the Torah for himself and take all the power for himself, like the rabbis? You, he would literally laugh out loud at you. Ramosha Feinstein was the most humble, idle person. The last thing on his mind was corruption and power. See, we have a little bit of a problem. The problem is called a little bit projection, but it's not only that. It's that we look at our leaders, and as well, we kind of think what we, how we would probably be in that scenario. But let's even leave that aside for a second. We look at our leaders. I want to say our leaders, I mean po- political leaders. We look at political leaders who are the ones, at least in on face, on face value, they're in charge of this world. And we look at them and we see what they do with power and corruption. And therefore we, and then we say to, well, not we, but those people who make this claim that the rabbis corrupted their, their, took all the power, what they do is they take their knowledge about their leaders, so leaders in politics, presidents, prime ministers, whatever it is, any politicians, and they project that type of image of what a leader is, and they project it onto the rabbis. And they say, we have our leaders, you have your leaders. Our leaders are extremely corrupt. That's all we know, corruption with leadership. Power corrupts, we know that. So of course, the rabbis are the same thing. But if anybody knows any of these gedolim personally, for one second, one aspect of these things, anybody, like I said, anybody knows Moshe Feinstein would literally laugh out loud if someone were to claim Moshe Feinstein tried to corrupt and take power for himself. And that's all the more so when we're talking about Moshe and his, his, his Rebbeim and his Rebbeim. See, when we know, when you know your Rebbe and your Rebbe is just head and shoulders above you in Torah and in righteousness and you see him and you say, wow, I'm nothing like that. Then it kind of makes you a little more humble when you know that your Rebbe would say the same thing about his Rebbe and his Rebbe would, he would say, I'm nothing compared to my Rebbe and so on and so forth until, like I said, you get to someone like the Vilna Goen and everybody at that point is just nullified compared to the Vilna Goen. He's just so great. And you go back and back and back and you have the Ramah and the Shulchan Aruch and, uh, and the Rosh and the Ramban and the Ran and the Ritva and the Rashman. You go back and back and then the Rambam and everybody, all these people who I said are would say they're nothing compared to the Rambam. And then you have that, and then you go back again, and you have Rashi as well, you have the Goinim, and everybody again, the Rambam and all the Goinim would say they're nothing compared to the Amorim, and so on and so forth, the Tanayim. So we have this Mesoira that you just are in awe of, and you should be in awe of. Let's talk a little bit about the, the point of, of the Jewish leadership is not only expertise, but it's also righteousness. When I said that their Rebbe would say about their Rebbe is much greater than them, I don't only mean in scholarship, I also mean in righteousness. There is no Godel in all of Klai's history. And think about this for a second. How do we pick leaders? 
There is not one Gadol in all of Klyasel's history, never, who didn't have, who didn't have both those two things, not only those two things, who wasn't head and shoulders above everybody else in his generation in those two things, scholarship and righteousness. A leader has to have, leader, a Jewish leader has to have both of those things, a Talmud Chacham, and he has to act like a Talmud Chacham, he has to act like a Malach Hashem. We know the Chavetz Chaim was a Malach Hashem, we know how he acted. Imagine having, being the Chavetz Chaim. Imagine hearing stories about the Chavetz Chaim. And again, he's nothing compared to the earlier generations. He would say about his Rebbe and his Rebbe. Rabbi Sal Salanter. Let's talk about Rabbi Sal Salanter. There was a story about Rabbi Sal Salanter. Two, I'll tell you two stories to bring out this point. Number one, he was, there was a story that he was trying to get the Musr movement going. So he would go around to different towns and want to speak about Musr. But he understood that Klaus at that time, at least at that time, they only listened to people who were big Tamil Chachamim, which they're right about. And in order for him to anybody to listen to him. He can't just be a maggot. He can't just be a Baal Muster. So he has to show that he, he knows how to learn. So he would first give a Gemara shir, And then after everyone saw that he knew how to learn, he, and then people would listen to him. So then he started talking about how it's important to learn Muster. There was one place where people, there was actually a lot of places where people didn't want, didn't like his message. They wanted to undermine his, his message. So there were two guys who did something very interesting that Rabbi Salsalanta would, would list a, li, have give a list of marmakomos of sources before the shear, let's say the day or two before the shear, so people could prepare, and then he would speak about the shear. What these two jokers did was that they changed the list of marmakomos. They, instead of the list that Rabbi Salsalanta gave, they gave a completely different list and they made it completely arbitrary, random sources from all over or wherever that had nothing to do with each other in order to make a fool out of him. So apparently the story goes that Rabbi Salasalanter got to the Bima, wherever he was speaking, and he saw the list in front of him. And he realized what happened. He realized it's not his list anymore, and he realized someone changed it. So this is how the story goes. The story goes that he he was there, he looked at the list, and he was closing his eyes or something or thinking for a couple of minutes, and then he proceeded to give a shear about the new list. He gave a shear completely putting together all the marmakomos, the new sources that were on the new list that he never seen before. Not only had never seen before, but they had nothing to do with each other, but he put them all together somehow. So the two people who were there, they were the only ones who knew what happened and they were just flabbergasted. And at, some, at the end of this year, when he spoke about the Muster, they actually came forth, they came clean and they told people, I don't think you realize, you didn't realize what happened here. They, they admitted what they did and they told everybody that what they did so that I guess they, they realized they were bested by him and they appreciated what he had done and they told everybody what he'd done. So uh, apparently the story goes, Rabbi Israel said that, he said, really, when I looked at the Baramakomos, I could have given the shear in like a minute. The reason why I was thinking for two or three minutes about it was whether or not I sh- it would have been too much of gaiva, too much of arrogance and haughtiness if I were to give the shear or or not. And he said, I, I decided that it was worth it to teach about Musr, even though it would look a li- like a little bit arrogant. So he could have given the shear right away. That's what he said. It was unbelievable scholarship. At the same time, this person, another story about him, and there are so many stories about him. I'm going to give you one small story about him, is that before Yom Kippur, he was seen in the Ezra's Nashim of the Shul on his hands and knees on the floor, going around to the wooden chairs or wooden benches in the shul and making sure that there were no wood chips that stick out. Why? Because he was worried that, that the, the, the women come with their nice dresses. He didn't want any of the wood chip to come and rip their dress. So he would go and smooth the wood of the, of the shul. And these are two stories about the same person. And in a, in a non-Jewish society, those two things are 
scholarship and righteousness don't necessarily come together. But in Klaiso, we understand, of course, Torah needs the tzidkus, the, the righteousness as well, the perfection of character. But in our gedolim, in our, in our leaders, it has to be. The Varen Cutler was a, a genius amongst the geniuses. We know this. His scholarship was unbelievable. But his Rebbinson said that during a shiva, she said, when some people came to visit her, she said, you think that the Gadol Hador was nifter, that the Gadol Hador in learning died, but you should also know he was a Tzadik Hador. If your wife says that about you, that's a pretty good indication that you're somebody very, very special. And that is the same thing with Varun Kutler. <coughs> the Chafetz Chaim, he was known as a Tzitkos, but we forget to sometimes that he wrote the Mishabura. Reb Chaim Brisker was known as the Ilui amongst Iluyim. But if you ask him on his on his Matseva, what was written about him? It's a Rav, Ches, Rav HaChesed, the master of Chesed. And he was that. People know Reb Chaim Brisker's stories about him, how he would help the Ammanas and the Yesoimim. And same thing with Reb Chaim Ozer Grzynski, who was known as a super genius, but he was also known as the father of the Ammanas. It's the same of the widows. It's the same thing for every single person in all of Kaisa. It's expertise and it's also righteousness and nobody compares. But what's more than that is if you go back every single generation, these are talking about people who lived in the last two, three hundred years. And that's only because that's because we have stories about them. We don't have stories about as much as about the Rambam, about Rashi. We don't have these stories about the Amoraim and Tanaim. We have what the Gemara says, but not more than that. But we know from personal experience, we know that since everybody knows a Rebbe and his Rebbe knows a Rebbe, we know I can compare myself to my Rebbe that I'm nothing compared to him. And he would say about the same thing about his Rebbe, that he's nothing compared to him and so on and so forth. So when you take back, take a step back and you think in those terms, it's, it's unbelievable what we have. The reason why the Achronim don't argue on the Rishonim is very simple. This is, we have to be an idiot to argue about them. It's the same reason why I don't argue on the Vilna Gon. I'm an idiot if I, argue, if I think I can argue on the Vilna Gon. I'd be stupid. Just have some humility. So there comes a certain point in every, some generations where they just realize at some point that we just cannot compare with the next generation. So at some point, let's say when the Shulchan Aruch was written, after that point, everybody, Klai Yisrael, the, the experts, the Gedolim of Klai Yisrael realized they were at no level possible to compare with the earlier generations. Therefore, we're not going to argue on them. We're not going to argue on, on the rush, from the rush all the way until Rashi, we'll call it, that's the period of the Rishonim. We're not going to argue any of that. We just know we're just not as good. We just don't know Torah as well as they do. It's a very simple thing. It just, we're stupid compared to them. That's basically what it is. Instead of arguing on the Rishonim, we're going to come to understand them. We're going to take them as axiomatic and understand them. And the Rishonim say the same thing about the Amoraim and the, about the Geonim. And the Geonim said about the Gemara that that's where Tarsha Valpeh is, and we don't argue on such things. And that's the yesoid of everything. Yes, we can argue. Yes, we, we are human beings. And yes, Moshe Rabbeinu was a human being. And yes, Amorayim were human beings. Could they make mistakes? Of course they made mistakes. They were human beings. They also tell us sometimes what made mistakes. And as Derek Agav on the side, that actually only strengthens my trust in them. I'm going to m- much faster trust a person who's willing to admit his mistakes as now I have confidence on the things where he doesn't back down from, on the things where he says he knows he's right. If I know he's willing to make admit his mistakes, then I can also trust him on the things that he actually says. But if there's a person who's not willing to admit make mistakes, then I can't really trust him on everything. We know our Rabbanim over the generations have admitted mistakes. Rabbi Kiva admitted his mistake when he thought Bar Kochva was, was Mashiach, and he wasn't. So he admitted a mistake. So fine. The question now is, is it likely that I'm making a mistake or is it likely that they're, they're making a mistake? Yes, they're human beings. Yes, they can make mistakes. Moshe made mistakes. But if, am I the one likely to catch their mistake? Am I likely to catch their mistake in Torah? 
The answer is no. Besides the fact that the Tersha Balpe itself is obviously perfect. But if you want to argue on, say, maybe they misunderstand the Tersha Balpe, that's where this comes in. I said, I, I don't think that just, I, I'm going to have some humility and I'm going to assume that I'm the one making a mistake, not them. There's a story that pretty much encapsulates this. There's Salvechik from YU. When he was learning the Ramban, he he always used to learn the Milcham Hashem in the Ramban in the back of the Gemara. And he got to a, a place in the Ramban that he just had no answer for. He had a question on this Ramban and he just had no answer. He went through this way, tried that. He had no answer for it. He left it as a Tzarech Iyun. And so one of the students said to him, said to, said to him, maybe, maybe the Ramban is just wrong. Or Salvechik said to him, the Ramban has a golden mind and I don't. If somebody's going to make a mistake, it's me, not him. And that was it. And that's the perspective. Anybody who knows anything about your Rebbeim and their Rebbeim and their Rebbeim and so on and the Vilna Gaon and the Chazanish and the Ramah and the Beis Yosef and the Marshal and the Levush and all these people, the Rishonim, everybody who knows anything about them can have some humility and simply say to myself, I'm not going to catch them their mistakes. I'm much less than them. And if you know their Tzitkus, then it's laughable that they would try and corrupt the Torah. It's just simply laughable. And again, everything is dependent on this point. Our whole religion stands on this. But we should realize that we should have a lot of confidence and that we're standing on extremely sturdy ground. Standing on the Rambam, standing on the shoulders of Rashi, of the Rashba, of the Ramban, is very, very sturdy ground. On the shoulders of Moshe Feinstein, of Aaron Cutler, the Vilna Goy, the Chazanish, the Roma, all these people who we know intimately, we know their writings, and we know them character-wise as well. We know their tzitkus, we know their honesty and their objectivity, we know all this about them. We're very, very, uh, very, very strong place. And that's why everything we have should give us a lot of confidence that what we're keeping right now is the Torah in its most pristine form, in its emistic form. And the last thing, on top of all of all of this, is one other point, which is Hashem's Hashkacha, with everything above, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, is also overseeing everything. Hashem is in charge. He's not only the lawgiver, but he's also in charge of history. And it makes a lot of sense that he would want his Torah to be preserved and kept and transmitted faithfully over the generations in order that people keep it. If he gave the Torah, if you don't put a insurance policy in it, then it, it's, it makes no sense. Obviously, he gave the Torah because he wants us to keep it. It makes a lot of sense. He's going to put insurance policy there in order to make sure that it's preserved. So with all everything we have, the protective, protective system that we have with Smichra and the transmission and the Gdom that we have, all that plus Hashem Zashkacha, it should certainly give us a lot of confidence that what we have is the, the true, true Torah. exclusive content on Patreon. You can submit your question and get them answered only for members on Patreon. Don't forget to check out our own website msofterra.com and remember, we are wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Subscribe to know when the next episode is being released. The podcast is produced by Ellie Podcast Productions.